Well, brothers and sisters, I'd ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 1 this morning as we really dive into the book together. And once you have that, I'd ask that you'd stand with me out of respect for God's Word, and I will read this passage. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and has set us free from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. As we think about what we are seeing here, we see that we are those who embrace an authoritative religion. Now, many people don't think that's the case. Many people, when they think of Christianity, they think of it as a man-made religion. So they think of Christianity as kind of the religious thoughts of men and women who wrote down those thoughts in a book called the Bible, and they did their best to understand God. They did their best to talk about their own experiences with God. But the Bible, they would say, is a, a man-made book, and they would say it is not a divine book, and so it lacks authority. And, you know, they can be forgiven for their perspective because many who would call themselves Christians actually teach the very same thing. So in his irredeemably evil book, The Heart of Christianity, liberal Bible scholar Marcus Borg writes this about the Bible. Listen to how he speaks about the Bible. He says, The Bible is the product of two historical communities, ancient Israel and the early Christian movement. As such, it is a human product, not a divine product. This claim in no way denies the reality of God. Rather, it sees the Bible as the response of these two ancient communities to God. As their response to God, the Bible tells us how they saw things. Above all, it tells us how they saw their life with God. It contains their stories about God's involvement in their lives, their laws and ethical teachings, their prayers and praises, their wisdom about how to live, and their hopes and dreams. It is not God's witness to God, not a divine product, but their witness to God. As a human product, the Bible is not absolute truth or God's revealed truth, but relative and culturally conditioned. So, according to Mr. Borg, the Bible is not authoritative and it doesn't come from God. Instead, it comes from men and women who tell us their own thoughts about God. And of course, we can learn some very interesting thing, things from these ancient men and women, but we should not think that the Bible is the Word of God. That's what Mr. Borg would say. Now, there are several problems with Mr. Borg's view. Let me give you just two. If the Bible is just a collection 
of men and women's thoughts about God, then we actually don't learn anything about God in the Bible. You see, all we learn in the Bible is what a certain group of men and women who lived a long time ago thought about God, but we have no way of knowing whether or not what they thought was actually true. And so you see, the Bible is completely uh, ripped. All authority is ripped away from the Bible. And now we're left with just the thoughts of men and women. The second problem with this view is that the Bible does not speak of itself as simply the religious thoughts of ancient men and women. No, everywhere and all throughout, the Bible speaks of itself as the authoritative word of God. So the Old Testament prophets, they do not say, these are our best efforts and our best guesses about the Lord. They say, thus says the Lord over and over and over. The Lord Jesus himself speaks of God's word as authoritative. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Really saying your word is the, it is the, the reality that casts judgment on all truth claims. The Apostle Paul declared that Scripture was divinely inspired in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, it's God-breathed, breathed out by Him and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And of course, the passage that we read in 2 Peter earlier in the service, the Apostle Peter also gives us the exact same testimony, that the Bible is not simply the, um, the best efforts of the will of men and women, but it is indeed the Word of God. Again, listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says, Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever comes by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, this morning we're going to see the exact same testimony as we look at Revelation chapter 1. We're going to see that the book of Revelation is not simply the, the product of an overworked imagination, or of a dreamer named John. Instead, we're going to see that the revelation is God's revelation, that it was given by God the Father to God the Son in order to give to John so that he could share it with the people of God. And because it is God's revelation, it carries his authority. It speaks with his authority, and so we would do very well this morning, and as we study the book of Revelation together, to obey and to listen and to give this our very best effort to understand how it is that God would have us to live. So we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. We covered uh, the background information really last week, so we're not going to do that again this morning. Instead, we're going to jump right into the prologue or the beginning of this book, and we're going to try to understand what John says here. Now, there's, there's a lot here. There's more than we're going to be able to say this morning. But in our time together, I want us to look at these first eight verses, and I want us to use five points to help us do that. Five points from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The first point is a divine source. We'll see that in verses 1 to 2. The second point is a divine blessing. We'll see that in verse 3. The third point is a divine greeting. We'll see that in verse 4 to the first part of verse 5. And then we're going to see a joyful doxology. That's the second part of verse 5 to verse 6. And then we're going to see a solemn declaration. And we'll see that when we look at verse 7 and 8 together. Let's look at that first point then, a divine source. Look at verse 1 and verse 2 with me in your copy of God's Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Now, verse 1 and 2, they're really the introduction to the book of Revelation. And, and here we see really the source of the book of Revelation. But first notice that John calls this a revelation. That word revelation really comes from, uh, from a Greek word that gives us the English word apocalypse. And it speaks of kind of an uncovering or an unveiling. Specifically, it's talking about an unveiling of a truth that can only be known by God. It's not something that men and women could have figured out on their own. It had to be unveiled for them by God so that they could know this truth. And of course, that's what the book of Revelation is. This is the unveiling or the uncovering of God's plan for the summation of all things at the end of time in Christ Jesus. That's what we're going to see as we look at this book together. This revelation was given to John in visions, and John was faithful to write down what he saw and then to pass it on. And notice that the book of Revelation is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's called that most specifically because it was the ministry of Jesus Christ to give this revelation to John, but it's also very appropriate for us to notice that Jesus Christ himself is it's really the focus of the book of Revelation. Uh, he's all throughout it. It centers on him in many ways. So John MacArthur put it this way. He said, while the book is certainly revelation from Jesus Christ, it is also revelation about him. So Jesus is both the source and the object of the book of Revelation. So the book does contain other themes. We see other themes as we look through the book, but over and over we see the focus goes on the Lord Jesus and on his glory and on his work. So the Lord Jesus is the one who holds the churches in his right hand. And the Lord Jesus is the one who is worthy to take up the scroll. And the Lord Jesus is the conquering warrior who overcomes all of his enemies. And the Lord Jesus is the great and ultimate judge who will one day cast judgment on the lives of every single person who has ever lived. As we study this book together, we are going to be confronted over and over and over with the glory of Christ, and that is so good for our souls for so many reasons. But it's so good for our souls in this way that the way we become like Jesus is by beholding his glory. That's how we become like him, is by beholding his glory. So I'm praying that we will see his glory, new, vista of his, uh, new vistas of his glory as we study this word together. Now, in the second part of verse 1, all the way through verse 2, the Apostle John tells us really a lot about this revelation. Uh, he tells us the source of the revelation and the purpose of the revelation, and he also explains his role in the revelation. So let's look at each one of those briefly. In verse 1, we see that the source of revelation is God the Father. So look at verse 1 again. John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him. So God the Father is actually kind of the fountainhead source of this revelation. And the Father gave this revelation to the Son, the Lord Jesus. And then the Lord Jesus gave the revelation through an angel to the Apostle John so that John could give it to the people of God. There are actually four steps in the transmission of the book of Revelation. There's God the Father, and then God the Son, and then through an angel, and then to John. And of course, from John, we have this book before us. In verse 1, we also see the purpose of the book. Why was the book written? Well, John tells us, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. 
So God the Father gave Jesus this revelation, and Jesus, through the angel, gave it to John in order to show John and the people of God what must soon take place. And again, that refers to God's plan to sum up all things in Christ at the end of time. And then in verse 2, we see John's role in the revelation. So look at what it says in verse 2, "...who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw." Now, the phrase is there, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, that's both referring to the same thing. In other words, this is God's revelation. It's God's revelation here, these visions and truth that he's giving to John. And what is John's role? John's role was not to make up the revelation. John's role was not to tell us his best thoughts about the revelation. No, John's thought was to be a, his role was to be a faithful transmitter of the truth that God entrusted to him and indeed, that's what John did. He wrote down the revelation in a book. Whatever he saw, everything he saw, he wrote it down for us so that we would have a true revelation from God. Now, from these two verses, let me make one observation before we move on. And the first thing we need to see here is that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. That's how we began the sermon this morning, talking about the fact that the Bible is not ashamed to declare over and over and over that this is God's word spoken to us so that we might know him, so that we might know our sin, so that we might repent, so that we might find life in Christ, and so that we might live in a way that is pleasing to him. And we see this same truth in verse 1 as well. Look at how John says the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is that? It's the book of Revelation that we have before us. This is God's word given to us, and so it possesses God's authority. And it, it is uh, this true word of God. So God is the source of revelation. Um, it can be trusted. It's derived from God himself. And of course, that's how it is with the entire Bible. You see, we're not those that think we can just pick and choose which portions of the Bible we like and say, well, this is inspired and this isn't. No, we believe all of the Bible is inspired by God. So the book of Revelation clearly comes from God. The rest of the Bible comes from God. And that is why we believe that it is the inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of God. Now, this reality is important. The reality that the Bible is inspired, that it's inerrant, that it is authoritative, is absolutely foundational for us. Uh, as a church, we put it this way in our statement of faith. We say, we believe that the Holy Bible, in its original autographs, was written by men divinely inspired, and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us, and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Friends, we believe that this truth is so foundational that we require anyone who would be a member of Christ's fellowship to embrace this reality, that the Word of God is inspired, that it is inerrant, and that it is authoritative. But of course, at the same time, it's not just this intellectual notion that we want people to, yeah, we just, we agree with that. We want people to understand that believing that God's word is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative is absolutely essential for the Christian life. It is so important for the way that we live. So just think about it. If God has not given us a clear word, how are we supposed to know what he wants us to do? 
And if only portions of God's Word are inspired, who's the one who's going to tell us which portions we should pay attention to and which portions we shouldn't pay attention to? There's many a liberal scholar that would like that role, but frankly, I don't trust him. Who is to tell us what we are to believe if this is not a perfect revelation? Friends, well, we're kind of without hope. And that is why it's such a struggle for those who have not yet come to a a firm and settled resolution in their mind that this is God's word and it can be trusted. It is so hard for them to be committed Christians. Why? Because they don't know what voice to listen to. We're constantly surrounded by voices telling us this is true and this is true and this is true. If there's no overarching authoritative voice that we listen to that's a guide, a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path, we are very quickly going to be pulled this way and this way and this way and this way. And this way, and that happens. You see, those who don't know what to believe do not know how to live. But we believe that the Bible is God's word, and as a result, we know how to live because God has been so amazingly clear. There are difficult things in Revelation, right? I mean, there are details that that we may not be able to fully unravel, but you know what's perfectly clear in Revelation is that God wants us to be holy. What's perfectly clear in Revelation is that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we should submit our lives to him. All throughout the Bible, God has given us a clear revelation of how he wants us to live. And so, friends, you see, we don't have to be confused about what's right and wrong or about what is good and beautiful and true or about the ugliness of sin and the danger of temptation because God has clearly told us these things, and we would do well, as Peter says, to pay attention to it. The application is that if we would live well, we must be a people of the book. You see, we can never wander away from the Bible and feel like, hey, we're going to be fine. You see, no, now we're modern people and we have so much technology. We're so much smarter than those dumb old people. Now we can come up with our own truth. Friends, we will just fall into Satan's lie over and over and over. Instead, we must give ourselves to God's word, not just brothers and sisters with lip service, but as a As a daily, regular discipline of the Christian life, we must take up God's word and read it so that we can know him and we can live for him. That's the first truth we see this morning. God is the authoritative source of the book of Revelation, and so we can trust it, we can listen to it, and we can obey it. There's a second point, a divine blessing. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. So here John pronounces a blessing on those who read, hear, and keep. In other words, those who obey what is written in this prophecy of Revelation. And I do think it's really important to understand that John doesn't have like the single Christian in his mind, like an individual Christian man or an individual Christian woman. Instead, what he's envisioning is he's envisioning a church service where you have someone who is reading this revelation to the church and you have those who are listening and they are paying attention and they are responding. You see, many people in the first century were illiterate and so they could not have read the revelation for themselves. In addition to that, paper was very, very expensive and so there were not many copies of revelation available. So how are they to hear this truth? How are they to hear this prophecy? Well, they would gather together as a church and they'd have a copy of church and they'd have one who would read this revelation to them and they were required to listen and to pay attention to it. And John says that those who do that, particularly those who keep or obey what is written in the book of Revelation, they will be blessed. That word blessed, it means happy. 
It means spiritually prosperous. It will be well for you is another way of putting it. This is what the Lord Jesus says in his Beatitudes. It's the same word, blessed, 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 over and over and over, referring to the one who possesses salvation. Well, this is the kind of blessing that John is talking about here. This is the way to be blessed, to be happy, to be spiritually prosperous. What is this way? It is to listen to the word of God and is to keep it. It is to obey what God has told us. There's a particular blessing for us, Christ Fellowship, in this study. Uh, As we are ones who hear the revelation, we have the opportunity by God's grace to keep it and to know His favor and grace. And the blessing that God will produce in our lives is very much the blessing that you see in Psalm 1, which is why we read Psalm 1 earlier in the service. What's going on in Psalm 1? You have the blessed man is the one who roots his life in God's word. And so he's like a tree that's planted by flowing waters. And so he has all that he needs to be strong and protected and healthy and fruitful. And that's what a Christian's life looks like when he or she is rooted in the Bible. It doesn't mean rich. It doesn't mean successful in worldly sense, but it means spiritually happy. It means in God's eyes, this one is blessed now and will be blessed forever. And this is what God promises us as we study this book. Let me ask you just one question, though, before we move on. Look at the end of verse 3, where Peter tells us why we should obey the book of Revelation. He says, because the time is near, the time is short. So when John is writing that, because the time is short, he's saying that this prophecy of revelation, really the summation of all things, return of Christ, it's soon to occur. And so obviously it is important for us to be obedient to this revelation because we will be judged based on how we live. But here's my question. Was John wrong? After all, 2,000 years has gone by and Christ still hasn't returned, so was John wrong? Is this an error in the Bible? Well, we addressed this very same question when we studied 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7 because, you know, Peter, interestingly, says the exact same thing. He says the end of all things is near. What, what's going on? What, this is what's going on. In the perspective of the New Testament authors, everything necessary had been done. Christ had come. His redemptive act was already accomplished. And now the only thing left, the only thing outstanding is the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. And over and over and over in the New Testament, they say, he's coming. He's coming. He's on his way. And the idea is that it could happen at any moment. And that is true for us today. The return of Christ is imminent. There is nothing else that has to happen. He can come at any moment, and so we must be ready. We should live lives of obedience to God's word because Christ could come at any moment. And actually, the Lord Jesus tells us that he's going to come in a moment that we do not expect. And so he encourages us to be obedient. Listen to what he says in Matthew 24, verses 44 to 46. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. So friends, in verse 3, we see that there is a blessing for the ones who read and hear and obey this book of Revelation. And we see in this book of Revelation good encouragement to obey because the Lord Jesus is soon to come. There's a third point this morning, a divine greeting. Look, if you will, at verse 4 through the first part of verse 5, a divine greeting. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So here John writes the greeting to this letter to the seven churches in Asia. Again, that's Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And we're going to study more about those churches as we work our way through chapter 2 and chapter 3, Lord willing, in days ahead. For us, it's enough to know now that each one of these cities was in a, or each one of these churches was in a significant city, and they were all a part of kind of a circular road that was an important route for trade and commerce in the province of Asia. But notice who is greeting them. Who does John say is greeting them? He says, from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the divine greeting. This is actually a Trinitarian greeting. So the one who is, who was, and who is to come, that refers to God the Father. Uh, It speaks of God's eternality, that God always has been, that God always will be, indeed, that God himself is the one who dwells outside of time. And if you think about that for a little bit, your mind will just be blown. He is other. He's other. He's the eternal God. And what a wonderful thing to think that this eternal God sends greetings to his people. And from the seven spirits before his throne, this refers to God the Holy Spirit. Again, I think we should understand the number seven here to be a symbolic number that speaks of completeness or fullness. And the idea is that the Holy Spirit is an infinite spirit. He is God, very God. And then he says, from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that refers to God the Son. And so you have all three members of the Trinity here giving a greeting to these seven churches But then notice what John does in the second part of verse 5. Notice how he kind of drills down, if you will, onto the Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes the Lord Jesus in three ways. He says the Lord Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now these are exalted titles for Christ. He's not just a religious teacher. He's not just a good example of the way to live. He's not just a nice path for particular people who kind of like him. No, no, these exalted titles for Christ tell us that he is God, very God, and he is to be worshipped and he is to be followed. The faithful witness speaks to the fact that Jesus is the one whose role it is to reveal the truth of God. That's what he says in John 18. He came into the world to testify to the truth and that those who are of the truth, they hear his voice. They belong to him. And the phrase, the firstborn from the dead, does not mean that Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead. If you read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see over and over that God, through his power, raised men and women from the dead. But it does mean that Jesus is unique, that he is preeminent in the resurrection. You see, Jesus is the one who conquered death. And Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. And so Paul says that he's the first fruits of a coming resurrection And brother or sister, if you are in Christ, you're going to participate in that coming resurrection. And the phrase, the ruler of the kings of the earth, refers to the fact that Jesus is sovereign over the nations. Now, we do not see the fullness of his sovereign reign at this time. Instead, our eyes are often focused on the little kings of this world that are constantly roaring. So in our day, we spend a lot of time focused on Putin of Russia, 
and Zelensky of Ukraine and, and Xi of China and Biden of America. And the 24-hour news cycle kind of just constantly puts before us the comings and goings and the strivings and the machinations of these little kings. And it seemed like they're going to be in control, and yet they're not. They're just like Herod and Pontius Pilate of old who strived and did their best to have their will be done only to find out at the end of the day they were simply accomplishing what a sovereign God had ordained to happen beforehand. And that is precisely how it is now. We do not need to fear the rulers of the earth because we have a sovereign who is over them all and he is the one that determines what enters our lives, what impacts us, and he is the one who will guide us safely home. And the application, brothers and sisters, is that we should trust our sovereign king. You know, there are voices constantly calling for us to find our trust in other places. Buy gold. Bad news cycle. Bad news cycle. Bad news cycle. Buy gold. Security. Buy silver. Get your 401k up. Watch the news. We'll keep you informed so that you can be prepared and friends, it's not wrong to think about how to prepare for the future. That's not wrong. What's wrong is putting our trust in anything other than our sovereign God. And one of the reasons why we are often fearful is because we are subtly putting our trust in other things, but deep down, we know that they're not strong enough to save us. And so we have no rest. You see, if we won't rest our souls in the Lord, we will not find rest anywhere else. Praise God, we have the privilege of resting in Christ. We can rest in our sovereign king and we can know peace in him. So here, this divine greeting from the triune God, a fourth point, a joyful doxology. Look at the second part of verse 5 to verse 6. In verse 5, the first part, John had been meditating on the glory of Christ, speaking of him as the faithful witness, the preeminent one of the resurrection and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, it's rich theology. And what does that rich theology lead the apostle John to do? What does he do in the second part of verse 5 and verse 6? That rich theology leads John to burst forth in praise, to burst forth in doxology, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a wonderful reminder for us that our theology, it should always lead to worship. It should always lead to praise. So if we're studying, you know, the attributes of God and the, the works of God so that we can know more about God than other people, we're completely missing the point, and God is dishonored by that. Instead, we should, we should study the attributes of God, the works of God, so that we can praise Him rightly, so that we can praise Him better, indeed, so that we can help others praise Him for who He is. And in, in these verses of praise, John gives us three reasons why we should praise the Lord Jesus. First, we should praise Jesus because he loves us. That's a really sweet thing. It's an amazing thing to think that the Lord Jesus loves us. How do we know that he loves us? Well, he's willing to die for us on the cross so that we might be saved. But the work continues, and now he is ever interceding for us, always before the throne, making sure that we have all we need to safely reach the farther shore and be with him forever. The Lord Jesus loves us and provides for us all throughout our pilgrimage and that fact, the fact that Jesus loves us, should be so encouraging to us because so many Christians struggle at just this point. 
they look at their performance and they see their failures and they're so discouraged and, and they just assume that God must be up in heaven disappointed discouraged, feeling like he got a raw deal, that God's just barely tolerating them, barely putting up with them, and Satan comes along and he whispers the exact same lie, and so they go through their days cast down and defeated because they haven't yet realized this sweet truth. Brother, sister, Jesus loves you. And you see, his love for you, it's not based on anything that you've done or can do. It's not a result of your efforts or your works. No, Jesus loves you because he determined sovereignly to set his love on you. He loved you at your worst, and so he's going to love you always. He's going to love you forever and ever and ever. You see, Jesus loves us better than we love ourselves. We love ourselves in part because we're very good at making ourselves seem better. We minimize our failures We put ourselves in the best light. But you see, Jesus knows exactly who we are. He knows all the dark spots. He knows all of the failures. And yet he is determined to set this sovereign love on us. And it is absolutely amazing to think that he is committed to us because we are his now and forever. So brother or sister, take heart. Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. And he will love you forever and ever and ever. There's a second reason we should praise the Lord Jesus, because he set us free from our sins, John says, and has set us free from our sins through his blood. And again, again, he points us to the cross. He points us to the cross where this great act of love and sacrifice was done. And in just a little bit, we're going to observe communion. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And when we take the cup, what are we, what are we doing? We're reminding ourselves that his blood was shed for us so that all of our sins would be forgiven, so that they would all be washed away. And third, we should praise Jesus because he has made us his own special people. Look at what John says there. He says, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Now, the background for this is Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where the people of Israel are brought out of Egypt, and they come into a place of covenant with God. And the Lord promised Israel that if they would obey and keep his covenant, he would make them a kingdom of priests and his holy nation. Tragically, Israel did not keep the covenant. Over and over and over, they fell into the sin of idolatry and pursued other gods. But you see, Jesus is true Israel. Jesus overcomes in every way that the people of Israel failed. And now in him, in him, those who put their trust in him, Jews and Gentiles, they enter into this relationship with God where they become this special people. In him, we become a part of God's kingdom, and we are priests under God, offering sacrifices of prayer and praise and service. So look at the blessings we've received. Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves us. He set his love on us. He has set us free from our sins, and he's made us a kingdom, priest unto God. And here's the amazing thing. We deserve none of it. The amazing thing is all of this is grace, you see. All of this is a free gift given to us from our sovereign God. And that's, that's the gospel that we preach. You know, the Bible, it does contain bad news. It tells us that we don't deserve God's love. It, it points to us and says, you were created by God to have a relationship with him. He made you for himself. He wanted to walk with you in an intimate relationship of obedience and service and love. But all of us were born sinful. And so from our very earliest moments, we didn't want to live for God. We wanted to live for ourselves. And we've all turned our back on him in countless ways. 
disobeying his law, writing our own laws and determining how we want to live. And that is at the heart of sin, this rebellion against God. And it brings us under his just wrath. And left to ourselves, there'd be no way for us to be good enough for God. There'd be no way for us to make ourselves right so that we could stand in his holy presence and say, I've done a good enough job. You should let me in. No, that's the bad news. But the good news is this. The Lord Jesus came to do for us what we could not do, what we would not do. He came to obey the will of his heavenly father perfectly and to love his neighbor as himself and to always give of himself and sacrifice and love and serve. And that's what he did most especially on the cross when at the appointed time, because all of this is the plan of God, at the appointed time, he lays down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He bears in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And now the good news of the gospel is this, that if you will turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ, and Christ alone, Jesus will be your Savior. You see, all these blessings that, that we just heard about from John, they will belong to us forever and ever. Our sins will be set free. We will receive Christ's love. And we'll be made a part of the kingdom. We'll be priests unto God. And these are great blessings. Uh, these blessings are given freely to all who will trust in Christ. And so, friend, we would urge you this morning to do that. If you have not, turn from your sins and put your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone, and you will find salvation in him. Brothers and sisters, if you put your trust in Christ, we should remember that it is an amazing thing to be a Christian. So many people, they look at Christianity and they think, well, Christians are people who think that God likes them because they're such good people. Couldn't be farther from the truth. We are people who have realized how desperately wicked and undeserving of the grace of God we are, and yet we have found in Jesus a willing Savior, and we have found salvation in Him, and now what do we do? We want to follow the same pattern you see in John, where the truth leads you to praise. And we want our lives to be like that. We want to respond to the truth of the gospel with a life of praise. And may God help us do that. A final point this morning, a solemn declaration. Look at verse 7 and 8. These are weighty, these are weighty verses. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now in verse 7, the Apostle John is quoting from Daniel 7, verse 13, and Zechariah 12, verse 10, to teach us the truth that Jesus will one day come again. He's going to come. He's going to manifest his glory. And John says that every eye will see him, saved and unsaved. All will see Christ's return but then John says, even those who pierced him. But you see, that doesn't just refer to the Roman soldiers that put him on the cross. It doesn't just refer to those Jewish religious figures that worked behind the scenes to have him murdered. No, this really speaks to all who reject Jesus. All who refuse to bow the knee to him. They're going to see him when he comes. And then the Bible says that they're going to mourn. But the word mourning here, it doesn't speak of a mourning for repentance. It speaks of a mourning of despair. You see, on that day when Christ returns, he's not returning as Savior. He's returning as judge. He's returning as judge to establish his perfect kingdom and to put down his enemies. You see, when Christ returns, friend, and this is why it's a solemn word, 
when Christ returns, it will be too late. It will be too late to repent and believe. You see, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. The Bible says don't delay, don't wait, trust in Christ. In verse 7, John gives his approval to Jesus' coming judgment. He says, so it is to be, amen. And then in verse 8, God the Father sets his seal on John's words by declaring that he is the Alpha and the Omega. God is the absolute beginning and the absolute end of all things, including history. He's the one who's going to bring all of these things to pass. He's the one who is and was and is to come. And so, brothers and sisters, considering the fact that the Lord Jesus is soon to come, we, those who have trusted in him, we should live lives of joyful anticipation. I think you see that in John here in verse 7. He speaks of the coming judgment of the wicked. He speaks of the mourning of sinful men and women. But you notice that John isn't ashamed of any of this. Instead, he says, amen, so it is to be. And the idea is that John wants justice to prevail on the earth. It would be a terrible thing if there was no coming final judgment. Just look at the situation of the world today and to think that all wrongs might one day not be righted. You know, there's something in us that longs for justice. John wanted Christ to right all wrongs, and John wanted Christ to make all things new. And this should be our desire as well, and we should wait for it with joyful, faith-filled anticipation, because on that day, all who put their trust in Jesus will see Jesus, and he will be what? He will be Savior and King and friend forever and ever. And I'm praying that as we study the book of Revelation, I think this is one of the great blessings of this book, is that our anticipation of his return will grow. That we'll meditate more and more on what it will be like when we see our Savior face to face. And so we will be more like him and we will rejoice in him more and more. So, brothers and sisters, we've seen an authoritative beginning to the book of Revelation. This book is not man-made. It's not just John's imagination. It's not just some dreams he had and wrote down. It's not just his hopes and dreams, this is God's word given to us as a faithful truth that we can build our lives upon. I'm praying that God will help us do that in coming days, that we will listen and we will obey and we will rejoice. May God do that in us and let's pray.